Well, the Englishman in Detroit is the story of the reemergence of entrepreneurship in Detroit. Detroit, as we know, was dominated by these giant industrial operations for 100 years. Small businesses are the backbone of the American economy and here in Michigan. But only 50% will make it five years in business. On Mitten Money, host William Zank will focus on helping Michigan-based business owners with the tough questions that will help them succeed. How do I expand my business? What options do I have for retirement? How do I move forward? Having worked with small business owners throughout his entire career and with excellent attention to detail and strong analytical skills, William Zank of TriStar Trust will unearth answers to these questions and more. You can subscribe to the podcast and learn more about how William and the TriStar Trust team can guide your small business at TriStarTrust.com. Good morning, good afternoon, and welcome to another episode of Mint Money. This podcast will focus on helping Michigan-based business owners find the answers to the tough questions that will help them succeed. On today's show, we invite John Gallagher on the podcast, who's an expert in all things Detroit. For more than three decades, John covered urban and economic events with Detroit Free Press, but later being inducted into the Michigan Journalism Hall of Fame in 2017. John is also an accomplished author, having written four books on Detroit. On today's show, we talk about the process of writing a book, John's biggest lesson that he learned from money, and the transformation that Detroit has made to become a tech hub. So welcome, John, to Mint Money. Hey, Will. Hi. Thanks for having me. Of course. And so how did you become an expert on all things Detroit? Well, to the extent that I am, it grows out of being a journalist at the Detroit Free Press. I came here in 1987. I was in my 30s. I was very interested in cities and had been turning myself into a journalist covering economic development in city, urban and economic development. And especially this attempt in what we now call or used to call the Rust Belt, the whole Northeast Midwest, to reinvent themselves after the economic dominance that was there for 100 years began to decline. So I came here in Detroit, of course, was the great urban story in the world. I mean, the city that was most dominant and now was in deep, deep decline. And so what do we do about that? So my coverage of Detroit, as I began to look at both the business side, the politics, the labor, the urban planning side, the land use side, we spend 30 years doing that on a daily basis. I guess you learn a lot. So that went into my work. Well, great. And I think it kind of corresponded probably into writing your latest book. And so as I mentioned in the introduction, You've written fourth books with the most recent book being The Englishman in Detroit. And so what inspired you to write this latest book? Well, The Englishman in Detroit is the story of the reemergence of entrepreneurship in Detroit. Detroit, as we know, was dominated by these giant industrial operations for 100 years, GM, Ford, Chrysler, and all the others, and all the steel mills and everything. And by their nature, these things, they had enormous capital requirements. They had enormous requirements for staffing, for workforces. And entrepreneurship, which was a big deal here in the early 1900s, when we had 300 auto companies vying for dominance in the early 1900s, that consolidated very quickly into these enormous, giant corporate industrial operations. And entrepreneurship fell out of favor because it really had no place in the world of, say, GM or Ford or whatever, U.S. Steel. And as the auto companies began to decline and really implode, leading to the GM and Chrysler declaring bankruptcy in 2008, we realized we had to do something different. We had to reinvent ourselves, both in Detroit and Southeast Michigan and Michigan as a whole. And what emerged, among other things, was entrepreneurship, the idea that you could kind of create an ecosystem that would nourish startup companies. And in the year 2000, it didn't exist at all. That ecosystem just wasn't there at all. I mean, there was virtually no venture capital. There were no incubators, business incubators, as there are now, tech transfer offices that universities were not doing much at all. And if you called yourself an entrepreneur, that was kind of a weird thing to say at that time. Now that ecosystem is pretty robust. I mean, we have a lot of venture capital, could always use more, but we have a lot. We have a whole bunch of 
incubators and accelerators like Tech Town in Detroit and Ann Arbor Spark and Automation Alley and so on. The tech transfer offices at the universities are really pretty robust in getting commercializing university stuff. And a guy who was at the center of that is the Englishman of my title, a man named Randall Charlton, who came here in 2000 to start a company called Estorand, which is a biomedical startup, which was highly successful. And then he became director of TechTown and the one who built TechTown into this really remarkable hub of entrepreneurship and training and activity in Detroit. So he was kind of at the pivot point of that. And as I got to know him, I thought his personal story was so remarkable. It mirrored Detroit's very early successful career within a kind of a wilderness years where nothing worked right and then came here and resurrected himself and, and did a lot of good in Detroit. So he's kind of the hero with the book, but it's really the broader story of how Detroit managed to create this. Wonderful. And so what was that process like for writing the book? Did you write the book and then maybe had it on a copy on your computer and then publish it maybe a couple of years later? And do you mind describing what those steps are? This is several books in now. I mean, some of them are really easy and quick. I mean, some of the books I've written about Detroit took a year or less to do with pretty focused reporting and writing and working with the publisher in advance, usually Wayne State University Press, which has been really, really good. This one took longer because it started out, I was just going to talk with Randall Charlton and so on to get his story down and figure out what to do with it. So he and I did a lot of long interviews about his life and career and what he did in Detroit. And then as it became obvious, I had to set this within the broader story of Detroit. Then I had to do all the Detroit research. And some of that I got just in my daily reporting when I was working at the Free Press. And some, there's a lot of history. There's some stuff in the book about how at mid-20th century, how entrepreneurship just wasn't welcomed in Detroit. People like Preston Tucker, the famous auto entrepreneur who flamed out in the 1940s, and how all the business owners at Black Bottom were wiped out by urban renewal in the 50s. And so there's a lot of history in the book too. So there's a lot of extra research that went into this and figuring out how to shape it exactly, what's the right balance between the Detroit stuff and the Randall Charlton stuff and interviewing people who had gone through Tech Town, the entrepreneurs. So there's a lot of kind of complicated interviewing that went into it and a lot of different versions of the manuscript that it went through. And then finding a publisher, because it's kind of a different kind of book, I eventually went with a group called Parifying Press in Cleveland, which is a self-publishing thing. Most of my books have been with Wayne State Press, and this time I decided to try to see how this works. So it's a long process, a long, complicated process. But like any author, you need to have people read your stuff and comment on it. So it went through a lot of good, thoughtful revisions, I think, along the way. So this one was a period of several years to bring this about, which is one of my longest efforts. For a short book, it's only about 150 pages. So, But for a short book, it took a long time. What would you say would be a very pivotal moment within the inception of TechTown? Like, what would you say was a defining moment, would you say, that really put TechTown on the map? Well, when TechTown started, incubators in general were sort of an untested concept. The first one probably goes back about 25 years, but they really were unknown in Detroit. And when TechTown started, nobody quite knew what to do with it. And Randall came in in 2008 as director of TechTown after having his own startup and really understood that. You weren't trying to create the next Apple or Google here. What you were trying to do is give hope to residents of a city that had lost their hope and lost their confidence in Detroit because of all the bad stuff that had happened in Detroit. So he began to preach that all the forgotten people, all the laid off auto workers and all the maybe people without business backgrounds, without an MBA, middle-aged people who were kind of had their first career flamed out, that all these people could reinvent themselves through entrepreneurship and as Randall said, we can reinvent Detroit one startup company at a time. 
And so he used to preach that we were going to have an entrepreneurial church in which people would get together and realize the value of entrepreneurship. One thing that he did is that a lot of business incubators and accelerators time limit the startups there. If you don't make it in three years, you're out. You're out the door. And he said, no, he wanted to do the opposite. He wanted to keep people there as long as they could before they literally outgrew the place because as he said, it's an entrepreneurial church where everybody learns from everybody else. And so you want the more successful ones that are growing to still be there so they can help the pure startups, the one-person startup, figure out what to do. So I think that, that was really an interesting way to approach the growth of TechTown. And he really took TechTown from when he got there, they had about five employees. When he left, they had about 35. They had about two dozen entrepreneur member firms. When he left, they had 250 it was economically a sustainable operation. It was almost broke when he got there. And it really was the sort of the center of entrepreneurial activity in Detroit. So really, that's a really important transition phase in Detroit's economic history that we don't know a lot about. It's like we write an awful lot about GM and Ford and Chrysler, not so much about the small startups. And I think that that's a really important phase that we're in right now that we need to appreciate. Looking back to the data gathering process that you were doing when you were trying to find out some information for this book, would you say when you were interviewing, and this kind of ties into, I guess, to your skills as a journalist as well, would you say a lot of the information that was good to you came more from asking good questions or came from good listening skills? Well, I guess I would say those are linked together. I think when you interview people, we're used to seeing, if you watch 60 Minutes, for example, back when Mike Wallace was there, he was famous for jumping out of the bushes and waving his microphone and ambush interviews. And that's not how most journalists do it. I mean, mostly you have to get there, sit down, be patient, get the other person talking and try to put them at ease and then listen very closely and respond to their questions. If I ask about A and they answer B, then I have to follow up with B. Occasionally you go back and say, well, you didn't answer my question, but mostly you have to sort of work with them and draw them out. That involves a lot of close listening and then gently asking the questions. I mean, sometimes you're in a situation in what we call a scrum, where you see everybody gathered around the CEO and everybody's firing questions. And that's one kind of interview. But the one-on-one interviews that takes an hour or more, that's when you have to just get a conversation going. It's not just me being the tough guy, the tough reporter, putting you on the spot. It's really me engaging you in a conversation so I can learn what you have to tell me. That's certainly what this book was about. I mean, all my interviews for this book were of that nature. I needed to learn what, I mean, I'm going to you because you have something to tell me about this topic and I'm not going to get it by being the one asking all the questions. I have to get you engaged in talking about it. That's phenomenal advice. And so what kind of change is necessary for a city to develop a new economic model like Detroit? And so thinking about a city, let's just go use, for example, manufacturing that may have been heavy manufacturing in the past. What type of investment is necessary for a city or a town or a municipality like that to make those necessary changes to change them and change the economic model into something like Detroit, where Detroit's more tech-focused, tech-forward? Well, I think that's a great question, Will. And I think the first answer is you have to recognize that times have changed. And I think one problem Detroit had that made things worse is that they were in denial for a long time, just as the auto companies were in denial going back to the 80s and 90s. As the foreign automakers began to steal their market share, they were in complete denial about that and about what kind of cars consumers wanted. I think a lot of the auto companies were still making tail fins and eight-cylinder land yachts when people wanted the little efficient four-cylinder cars. So get out of denial as fast as you can and then play to your strengths so that most cities, most large cities anyway, like Detroit or Pittsburgh or Cleveland, have pretty robust 
hospital and educational university systems already in place. And that's where a huge number of new jobs are coming from. Even when Michigan went through its lost decade, the first decade of the 2000s, when they lost jobs for 10 years in a row in Michigan, it never happened before that kind of decline. Health and education sector grew throughout that time. So recognize where you do have jobs, what your strengths are. And then there can be a certain amount of economic development policies, the right tax breaks, tax incentives, and that kind of stuff. So we've had a lot of debate in Michigan about, do we really need to incentivize a big, huge development project downtown, or do we need to do more workforce training and that kind of stuff? And I think that you need to put your economic development dollars in the right place, really invest in people and really build on industries that appear to have some headway already. In Detroit, for example, we put a lot of money into the riverfront development because we have this wonderful riverfront and it does a lot, attract thousands and thousands of people. So let's see what we can do with the riverfront rather than planting a robotics farm somewhere. Okay, great. And so over the course of your 30-year career covering with the Detroit Free Press to where you are now, what are some of the biggest and most surprising changes that you've witnessed throughout your time covering Detroit? Well, the first 15 years was mostly about the decline. And beginning around 2005 or so, a lot of the efforts that we were trying in Detroit began to take hold. There was one, there was the Super Bowl in 2006, which involved a lot of regional cooperation, both the corporations, the politicians, the nonprofits. They all kind of got together and said, we're not going to embarrass ourselves. We're going to make this a really successful event because the world's going to be coming to Detroit, which it did. And they really had a remarkable collection of people, Roger Penske, who led the effort and so many others, who really pulled that together. And it created a sense of regional cooperation that hadn't been there before. And then in 2008, we had the bankruptcies of GM and Chrysler and Ford had a mortgage itself, short of bankruptcy. That was the event that convinced everybody that really we need to change economically. And that's when we started to see the emergence of entrepreneurship. Dan Gilbert moved his company downtown in 2010, Quicken Loans. He brought down 1,500 employees 10 years later. Just pre-COVID, he had 17,000 downtown. So in 2005, six, seven, eight, that's when things began to take hold. So the first 15 years I covered Detroit was all about the decline. And then the next 15 years, it's been about all these interesting reinvention strategies. So if that, for example, land use, all the abandoned lands and all the abandoned buildings, we began to figure out ways to actually deal with that through urban farming, through creating greenways like the Riverwalk and the Dequindra Cut. We're using old buildings in interesting ways. For a long time, most of those older early 20th century office buildings on Woodward in downtown Detroit were just empty. I mean, for most of the 10, 15, 20 years when I was covering, I mean, just a bunch of empty buildings. And now they're all filled up. They were converted to residential apartments, which was the thing as people began to move back downtown. So Detroit really sort of figured out how to reinvent itself during that time. And that process continues. I mean, we have a long way to go, I think. But certainly, you can say that we've made a lot of progress. Now, COVID, of course, stopped everything in its tracks, and we have to see how we emerge from this. But it had really begun the process of reinvention. And I think a key part of that is understanding you're not going to be back. A lot of times people say, well, let's restore what was there. And that's not going to happen. It's going to be a different city than it was in the 50s. And I think it'll be a better city. But it's underway, but we still have a ways to go, for sure. Good. So switching topics to a little more about money. What does money mean to you? Well, I think at this point, at this stage of my life, money probably means security and freedom, safety. When I was 21, it broke all the time. I had to borrow five bucks to buy a beer. Money was more of a pressing need, something I never had enough of, and blah, blah, blah. But at this point, having saved 
really hard for a long time now. I think money is sort of security and freedom and an enabler so that my wife and I, if we want to do something, something reasonable, we have the wherewithal to do it. So I think that's how I look at money now. It's something you need a certain level of it just to live relatively comfortably without constantly worrying about it. What's the biggest lesson that you learned from money? I think, well, I've learned a couple of lessons about money. One, of course, is don't waste it. I mean, don't throw it away on stupid stuff. It's okay to indulge yourself once in a while. I mean, that could be a latte or it could be a new car. I mean, but don't throw it away on stupid stuff. I think a really important lesson that people may not think enough about is when you get married, if you get married, when you get married, marry someone with the same values about money that you have. My wife and I, fortunately, both believe in saving the max in our retirement accounts. We both believe that it's okay to take a nice vacation, but don't be ridiculous about what you're going to spend and don't spend it on stupid stuff. So I think when we first met 25 years ago, we sort of would say, well, okay, if there's a new restaurant in town, new fancy restaurant, we have to go there and try it. But now I think it's much more about if you go out to eat, it's more about who you go with and not where you go necessarily. So we're perfectly fine going to a little taco place with friends and having a good time, have some tacos and a margarita instead of going to some fancy place and spending hundreds of dollars. So don't waste your money. Marry someone with the same money values that you have. And understand, as the old saying has it, that getting rich quick is almost impossible, but getting rich slowly is not that hard. If you just work for a long time and save your money steadily, at some point, you'll have a nest egg that you can rely on. So I think it's easy to get in trouble with money. It's not that hard to stay out of trouble. It's easy to get in trouble. Of course. And switching back into a little bit about Detroit, what's a common misconception that people have about Detroit? Well, I think one misconception is that Detroit is still kind of the abject failure that it appeared to be maybe in the 90s or the early 2000s when nothing seemed to be going right. And I think people are still surprised with how much interesting stuff has happened in the city. Now, sometimes they overdo it and they say Detroit's back because they come downtown. This is pre-COVID, of course. They come downtown and they see all the restaurants. And really, the downtown scene, midtown scene was pretty remarkable. Even though I've been here more than 30 years, I would be amazed. I'd go to a new brunch place that opened on Sunday morning and there's 100 people there in a line outside. And you think, who are all these people? (laughs) But it's possible to say that the downtown revival is Detroit, and it's not. It's just the downtown revival. So I think that one misconception is that nothing happened. I mean, Detroit's still an abject, total abject failure, abandoned. Nobody lives here anymore. And the other misconception is that, oh, everything's wonderful. Detroit's back. We're the comeback city. So it's, there's a lot of progress on a lot of different fronts, but we still need to make a lot more progress before we get where we want to be. So what's your favorite movie about Detroit? And then do you have any other favorite books about Detroit too, whether it be history, culture, things like that? Well, I think one of the books I read when I first got to town was The Reckoning by David Halberstam, which is the history of sort of the implosion of the American auto industry and the onslaught of the German and Japanese car makers. And I thought there was more good history in that about the city than anything else I'd read. There was one interesting TV show that was on a couple of years ago called Detroit 187, which was a cop drama with Michael Imperioli playing a Detroit homicide cop. And what was interesting is that they filmed it here. And in some scenes, they got Detroit exactly right. And in other scenes, it was completely bogus. I think the most interesting bogus thing that they did, the Detroit cop had to go to Windsor to talk to a suspect. So they get to the Windsor police station and a French Canadian cop named Claude is speaking French to the suspect and kind of slapping him around. And I thought, don't they realize Windsor is English, British, Ontario, Canada? This is not Montreal, Quebec. This is winter. So, I mean, totally bogus. But other scenes that they had in Detroit were just spot on. So that was an interesting 
example of how you can get Detroit right and also get it pretty wrong. There's a lot of classic books about Detroit. Tom Segrew's The Origin of the Urban Crisis. And if I could just put in a plug for some of my own, Reimagining Detroit, or this new one, The Englishman in Detroit, I think I try to pack a lot of local history into those. So for those who want to learn more about yourself, what are some good resources for the listeners? Well, let me talk about Detroit first, if I can. If you want to learn more about Detroit, read the local papers, the Free Press, the News, Crane's Detroit Business. Follow local news. I think that's pretty essential. And even today, when the economics of the local news business are pretty scary, and the ability of the local media to cover the scene has been diminished by the fact that the economics of the business were so threatening. At the same time, they're essential for understanding Detroit. For me, I have a page on Facebook called Reimagining Detroit. I took it from the title of one of my books. And I post a lot of things on reimagining Detroit on Facebook about the city and about redevelopment efforts and where we're going and what I think is interesting. I have a Twitter account where I post daily, usually. That's at Gallagher underscore D-E-T, Gallagher Detroit. And people can follow that. And then, of course, I have my books out there, Reimagining Detroit, Revolution Detroit, The Englishman in Detroit. Usually Detroit's in the title of all my books. And so that's another way to do it. And of course, you can search the archives of the free press to some extent, depending on what level of membership you have. And you can find my articles going back 30 years. And I'm happy for that. I do a lot of public speaking, a lot of lecturing, speak to college classes and public libraries. And as COVID finally releases its grip, I expect to do a lot more whenever I have a new book come out than I do. I make the rounds of libraries and bookstores. And I hopefully will be doing that too this spring and summer into the fall. So I'll be around. If you need to reach me, probably either direct message on Twitter or direct message on Facebook through Reimagining Detroit. That would probably be the best way. Well, perfect. Thank you for mentioning that. So thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Mint Money. We love all the feedback that we receive. So please let us know if you have any or other ideas for new guests on the show. If you haven't already, please rate and review our podcast. Additionally, please follow our podcast so you don't miss when new episodes drop. Thanks, John. Thank you. You've been listening to Mitten Money, sponsored by TriStar Trust. Subscribe to the podcast and learn more about how William and the TriStar Trust team can guide your small business at TriStarTrust.com. Mm-hmm.